Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? He Yining. That's how we say it in Chinese. And sometimes, and you will see the spelling as H O as my surname, since a lot of Cantonese people they will use that spelling. But I, I coming from mainland, where we use H E as my surname, so I just keep that pronunciation. Yeah. So you can call me Yining. Yeah. Yining. Great. That makes it so much easier. <laughs> I'm horrible with names and pronunciation, so that's why I always ask everybody. Now, yeah. you're a curator and a researcher in the photographic arts in China, which yeah. I, I want to say you're my first guest from China. So very exciting to me. Really? Yes. I have been emailing so many people in China and nobody will respond to me. <laughs> so, I can't believe it, but guest. yeah. <laughs> it's true, sadly. So. Uh, but I'm interested in sort of your background. So did you, were you, did you go to schooling for this? Like, how did you even come to the sort of role of being a, a curator and a researcher? Well, it's a long story, but... Um, I love long stories. Simply, I grew up into a literary family, grandparents and parents spending their times helping China. I mean, basically build up the system. And also there are challenges because they're trying to do a lot of effort doing good things. And I grew up in a really kind of, um, I have a lot of books at home and I can choose whatever I want to do. And I started literature and linguistics during my first four years and I changed my mind. I become an amateur photographer, and I want to continue that career, which is on one side, it's very challenging. On the other side, it's a new work for me. I mean, going out and see things. And then I realized I'm not a perfect practitioner, but I can be a good researcher, writer, and curator. So that's how I come. And probably that's the reason we are having this conversation today. So I've been working in this field for probably 10 years, yeah, since I graduated from London College of Communication for my master's degree. Well, you've been incredibly productive if you've only been doing this for 10 years because you've done numerous books and exhibitions in some rather you know prestigious places. Congratulations. Thank you. And I think that's one of the reasons I choose to live in China, where you will see a lot of opportunities for young people. I remember once I spoken to Wu Hong, who is, I mean, the greatest art historian in the area. And because he'd been working in the US for many years, and he told me, like, you can't have this, this much of like opportunities in the US. The structure was where built, where like structured. And for, for young people, you have to follow simply follow the rules of what it is. But in China, I think for young people, especially for my age and for my generation, we do have a lot of opportunities to explore and make it real. So that's something I want to share at the beginning. So it's it's very exciting, but also we have a lot of things to fight against. We are in a community who helping each other something like this, especially after COVID-19 outbreaks. 
I haven't gone anywhere for the last two years. I mean, it's a life of experiences. Yeah. Even now? We can go within China, but now things getting worse. I'm not sure if you have heard about Shanghai. I have. It's been in the news. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, the news is coming out every single day from the social media, and it's very dark, and people can't go anywhere, and many people died from other disease other than COVID. I mean... But it's the most darkest time, I mean, since March. This is the, like, something... Mar- you mean March 2021? Um, I think it's March 2022, since the, the war starts. And also the earthquake happened in Japan and followed by the air crash in China. Haven't gone stop since early March. I mean... Too much for everyone living in China. I completely understand. I mean, one of the, the the thing you bring up about this, like one of the things that I found most interesting about you is you're not only living in China, in Beijing in specific, correct? You live in Beijing, right? I live in Tianjin, where it's a 30 minutes high-speed train away from Beijing. So it's about two hours drive. Whoa. That high-speed train goes that fast? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's a very high-speed train. But the thing I was interested in is the, is the cultural difference, because you, you went to schooling in the UK and you've done a lot of work in Europe. I'm interested in some, some of the similarities and the differences in the cultures of photography, photographic research, and curating between the two different cultures. To be frankly, I didn't see many differences in art or photography fields. Like many of my peers, they graduate from Europe and other places like US and Japan, basically. So trying our best to bring different ideas and different ways of curating and writing photography. And and I'm not sure if you understand this, but we're trying to build up a very international way to doing the job or to curate an atmosphere within the industry to make our feel comfortable. Well, I do understand. I mean, I'm a photographer myself and a professor, and I I was raised in America, but I now live in Europe. So, like, I notice a lot of these sort of cultural differences, even in the yeah. dynamics of the the um, sort of the commercial industry of it. So, you know, vers- like in America, it's very capitalistic, so they're all about selling artworks, whereas in Europe, yeah. they're much more about sort of the concepts behind it, kind of things. Like, where does the Asian market fit, sort of, in that kind of realm? I think it's all mixed together. You will see the commercial part in the Shanghai. You will also see the very academic side of photography research and like curation in Beijing. And it's very dynamic and it's also mixed. It's where you can see different cultures and it just mixed together. So you will see things in the East and the West and that basically how the lives looks like in living in China. So you, you will find the books in, in Chinese and English and in Germany and in Japanese. I mean, this was quite diverse place, but also we are facing some localized problem, which is, for example, censorship. Censorship from the local and um, cultural bureau who needs to ask us to send all the information to, of the foreign um, artists 
I mean, this is sometimes very ridiculous, but also we understand like we are thinking about audiences, and the the they not allowed us to show something extremely nude and extremely political, but you never know what the right line is. <laughs> That's something we have to face it every day in publication, in curating the exhibitions, and recently. I'm working with another curator from the Netherlands, and we are curating a show for the 15 years diplomatic relationship of Sino, like Dutch,、uh, from the Netherlands and China. And then we have this artist who did a perfectly work and documenting people's lives during the COVID outbreaks. Then yesterday we received a message from the local. Bureau of Culture saying you can't show this because we are suffering from the COVID in Shanghai and probably the audiences will have some reaction to this part of work. So it's very pathetic to having this self censorship and system in China. So we kind of refuse to for us to show this body of work. That's the story. I mean, it's unexpected, but we trying to find a way. To persuade them that we want to having this work with us, yeah, that's the, the story. Well, I mean, it's an interesting issue because, of course, I grew up in America where censorship is sort of not、uh, appreciated. Let's say, you know, freedom of speech is sort of one of、yeah. the fundamental things of America. But there is still a lot of censorship, even in America, but very different than what you're dealing with. So, like, I would love to know more about the sort of this nature of censorship. Are you Sort of free to talk about this, or is this something that should、yeah. be censored? We 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 can definitely we can talk about this, but the thing is, it's like is your father always want to control you, and they are always thinking you are the child of the family. So we think the young people will getting bad when they see nude pictures. So they're not a lot people to to seeing them. This is very Asia, not only in China, also in Singapore. Because I'll be the co-curator of the Singapore International Photography Festival this year, and I also being told that we can't show nude photographs. We can't show extreme political issues in Singapore, even if they are not like us. I mean. I think it's pretty much Chinese, or it's like a East Asia things. Also, it, it happens in Japan as well. So I don't know. It's about culture. Also, it's very political as well. I mean, very complicated. Yeah, it sounds complicated because I hear about censorship in many parts of the world. Because I also lived in、uh, the United Arab Emirates, which is、uh, Islamic, and so there were certain mandatory self censorship there because if you Did anything wrong, you would actually be thrown in prison and all that. So you know, you you had to self censor or else you were in a lot of trouble. Are the sort of lack of a better word, like are the rules of like what is and what not appropriate, sort of very clear, or is it very sort of subjective depending on who looks at it? Yeah, it's very blurry. I mean, it really depends. But you will see, we have to send this information, right? So if Local official, they allow us to show some exhibitions, so they will take the responsibility. So normally, people in that position will trying to minimize their responsibility and saying you better not showing that. You understand what I mean? 
Yeah, like they they won't say do not show it because we told you not to, but you, they'll say something like we would encourage you not to. Yeah, show yeah, that. exactly. It, it's your choice, but we really think it's a bad idea. <laughs> and and also, it really depends on where you live and where you curate the expression. Normally in Beijing, you will see more freedom. I mean, it's strange, but yes, like I. Curated many shows in the, in Beijing, and they will report. We won't spend lots of time on checking the work list. So normally it's more easier, and yeah, just do it, and nothing happen. But in Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, probably you, you, you do spend a lot of time on working on the work list or like the sensor forms. It's pretty weird. There are forms. Yeah. If you are the curator, you want to work with a proper institution, like museum, art gallery, not small gallery. I mean the, the proper state-owned or private-owned and、um, non-commercial institution, you have to fill this work list or censorship form and sending all the works and statements and artist background. Before you get that letter, and then you can show the work. It's more complicated, but I didn't see it. I mean, this is just happening in last five years. But before that, it will be more. We have a lot of space for that. It's getting tighter. That's interesting. What happened five years ago that changed this? Because different people coming to the position. Okay, fair. Yeah. I get it. You talked a little bit about like the, this sort of transition of like so some people from the Netherlands wanting to show some work in China. How much of the sort of the I, I keep using the word market, but you can call it whatever you want. The industry, the the art world. How much of it is very much Chinese or Asian specific, and how much of it is sort of artists from other parts of the world? And I always wonder about like the mix versus whether it's, for lack of a better word, sort of centric to your region. We have a lot of Chinese photographers and artists working in mainland, but also you understand there's a lot of culture exchange programs and initiated by art council. For example, Prohibicia, which is kind of Swiss art council, but also we have in Goethe Institute, which is a German. Like art council, something like this. Within China, we have a lot of these types of international art organization who are trying to build up this communication through art. So you will see. Also, there's a lot of galleries represent the artists, normally big names for the commercial sectors. So it's quite mixed. And you will see the system helping the Chinese artists, but also you will see a lot of institutions from elsewhere. They're trying to bring the artists from overseas. So it's half half. I I'm not sure, but it's quite mixed. It's where the East and and the international and I mean the West in coming together. So it's pretty exciting place to. To see the work, to see the art, sometimes that's good. I mean, well, because one of the things, of, of course, as a practicing artist myself, and I believe a lot of listeners are also practicing artists. Like, how would an artist get on, sort of get on your radar? You know, like, so like, how do you find new artists? 
this is a good question. And normally, yeah, I'll spend some time uh, visiting gallery and exhibitions, like personally. But at the same time, we have a lot of like open call, either from China or internationally. So it's a good way to meet young artists. I I'm recently finished my ju- like jury review of the application for the Singapore International Photography Festival for 2020. So there were 400 applications. So it's a good way to looking through all these works and find out the new talents or some people who you were never meeting person. So that actually works because I've often wondered whether, like you know, entering a, into a competition actually manifests some sort of relationship or, or future projects with the the jurors. I believe it works because I've been working with many people that I never know in person, but I find their portfolio really interesting. So I contact them and. Yeah, that's how I manage it to meet new people. And before 2020, before the COVID outbreaks, it's also great time for the photographers to traveling to different places for the festival. I bet you you have been to many of them, so it's great time for us to meet young talents and. Meet young people who have a great passion for photography. We can sit together and just talk and seeing their portfolios. Hopefully, everything will be back to normal next year. Or for me, because I'm planning going back to the UK late this year. It's too much for me. I mean, living in China for two years and can't get to, to many places. So, I probably I will start my. New life in Europe for next two or three years. That's my plan. That's a great plan. Just side note, but you bring up an interesting topic which I don't probably engage in enough, which is sort of like how has the entire sort of pandemic affected the photography industry in the region? I mean, I know we're still sort of in it, so it's not like、yeah. we can look at it with hindsight and all this. But there are still very clear effects, I'm sure, in some way. Yeah, especially for photography, because we are the people who are willing to meet new people and going to travel and explore the world. And normally, before 2020, I would spend a lot of time just traveling different countries in Europe and Asia, and Having this face-to-face conversation and doing some research situation, but now everything has changed. Commercially, last year I've been the curator for the photo fairs Shanghai, which is one of the biggest like photo fairs in Asia Pacific. But thing is, the, the international galleries are basically they can't visit Shanghai and. For the Hu Photo Fest Shanghai, we have like fifty Chinese galleries, and the visitors they couldn't having this kind of experiences to meet international artists. That's one thing. The other thing is I curated a couple of exhibitions without going to the place, or we, I can't、um, 
inviting the artists coming to China, which I think is very crucial thing to having this communication in place, other than just through the works in the space. That doesn't really make sense. I think 2020 had this exhibition with and seven Swiss artists, and we are planning to inviting them coming to China and having the talks and visitings and programs that don't work. But alternatively, we are having this online uh, artist talk section, also some other ways to trying to balancing this kind of thing. And still, for this year's exhibition, and Ruben and I, we're having like 11 Dutch artists working in China, but the thing is, none of them can actually visiting the exhibition, which I think is pretty sad. Yeah, that is difficult. But you brought up something that made me think about it, which is like, how is the arts in general? I mean, obviously, you're specialized in photography, but the arts in general sort of supported and funded in the in the region. So like these projects that you're doing are these through some academic structure, through government, through private funding, like how how is it all work there? Because, again, I grew up in America and the sort of the granting model and all these kinds of different things is very different than in Europe. And so I'm interested in sort of Mm. the the different ways that that's all done in your region. Okay. There's a couple of of big institutions owned by the government who I work with, and they will sponsor the exhibition by their own. Sometimes um, I'm working with, for example, the Art Institute, who's like kind of self-funded, and also there are like commercial sectors as well, but my work will not relate to the commercial sectors directly, but the funding is coming from different layers, from the government, also from the self-funded institutions, and also from like the Photo Fest Shanghai, they're basically their companies. So that's uh, the structure of the who, I mean, the the art world. So the government, I mean, from the cultural sectors, they have a lot of funding to spend on arts, uh, not only contemporary art, but also like Chinese art in a way, and the theatres and films, and also for the contemporary art and photography sectors, and money comes from the art institutions and the commercial sectors. This is roughly my answer. It's great. I've noticed you've done both curatorial work, you know, internationally and local, and you also do do books as well, which I love that you do books also. Are these all projects that are sort of pitched to you or do you pitch projects for these books? I pitch the projects for the books. And also, normally I will try to find a good partner to work with when I have new ideas. So I have a lot of ideas, I have a lot of projects, and also I have a good networks with institutions, also with publishers. So when I come up with an idea, so I will trying to find the most suitable people or organization to work with. That's how I gradually am having this experiences. But this is how I came to now. But still, you can see there's a big space for 
people who have passion to connect to people through art or doing research or even for the young people who trying to find a place to exhibiting their work there are always a lot of opportunities here because traditionally when anybody thinks of curator we think of like a lone curator either in a library or an office sort of like writing by themselves but you seem to have taken on the, the task of sort of working in uh, a collaboration with other people and so that that's a very interesting dynamic that i don't think a lot of curators do it's a very challenging position because for example i'm working on commission and project called the port and the image each two years i will commission six to seven artists or photographers to work on the project related to the issue which is the port and they can either go into the in, in Shanghai or, or Guangzhou, Tianjin, I mean, we uh, normally I'll pitch some places and I will find a suitable artist to work on the project. And then we will show this exhibition and publish a catalog for the China Port Museum. So it's kind of, and um, as a curator, also I'm a writer, I'm an um, editor of the book, also the curator and designer of the space. So this is a very challenging and process, but I have to work with the staff in the museum alone. But still, you can see this collaboration between me and the publisher and artist and the director of the, that museum and the staffs from the museum. So it's it's kind of one people, but you have to balancing everything at the same time. And uh, over the last six years, probably, yeah, we had two exhibitions and two books came out and this is the third time i'm very excited to having this exhibition late this year uh, one thing i always wonder about people that work with like institutions publishers all these kinds of things these are a lot of people think like oh yeah i'll just put on an exhibition or i'll just make a book like it takes years to like schedule it into uh, the the institution or museum's schedule and then the, to do the publishing and getting permissions and doing all this kind of stuff. So like how long do most of your projects seem to take for you? Uh, it's a good question. I think at least one year, like one to two years, for example, this um, the third issue of the Portland Image Projects, it will take even two or three years to think ahead of time. And also we have to connect the publisher and designer and we make the contracts one year earlier. And also it's a very careful process to select artists and photographer and make sure they have the full passion and they have the time to do the project. So normally it's one to two years. And for the international exhibitions, sometimes it will be more difficult things. And we like have censorship. to, yeah, censorship is a big issue here. And normally like one to two years. But some like independent small exhibitions in the city, which you don't need a lot of resources normally it's like half a year or a few months it also works 
Sorry, and if you don't mind me asking, actually, you keep talking about academic stuff and and all these different kinds of things. What what is it that you do, sort of quote unquote, like for a living? Like, how do you make your money out of doing all this? Okay, I got curation fees from the institution. Nice. And also doing the publishing editor work, and also talks, lectures, talks. And also, I'm writing for magazines and journals. It all works, but I, I don't need a lot of money, and I think it's quite okay for me at this period of time. The reason why I ask is, of course, because、mm-hmm. a lot of people in the arts industry go into like academia. You know, they teach, they do other kinds of things like this to sort of you know create a standard、uh, income, basically. So I was just wondering if you do、yeah. anything like that. I don't have a teaching position, but I have to say the income is okay, and compared to the international standard, which yeah, it, it's pretty good in Chinese standard. So I'm quite satisfied. And also, my partner husband working in the science sector, which is pretty good in salaries perspective. So I don't really need to work that hard to survive over lives. Sounds amazing. I'm I'm quite envious, quite honestly. So yeah, moving to a different topic though, the Ports Project. So is this something that came about sort of in reaction to what is happening with the whole pandemic and and the supply chain, or did this start before that? And the Ports Project came early as 2015. When okay, so far I, before that, yeah, when I met one of the staff. Or designer from the China Port Museum, and we have this conversation to collaborate on sort of project which we can show active the photographers and asking them to making the archive for the future. You understand that in a museum like the China Port Museum, you will find a lot of archives and artifacts who is sleeping in that vitrine. Okay, wait. Just to be clear. There's a museum about ports. Yes, it's called China、okay. Port Museum, located in Ningbo, and it's a massive, big proper museum owned by the country. And so, what we are doing is we're trying to collaborate, like me trying to collaborate with me, and having this project, inviting young talent to making the projects. On ports, whatever they want to do. So we had a first edition and the second one on 2017 and 2019, and now it is the third edition. And we're trying to taking over the temporary gallery and to active this topic again this year. In my, okay, in my mind, in the history of curators, we often think about like curators just like going into a collection and basically saying this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece, put it together. It's an exhibition. Whereas many curators these days sort of basically come up with ideas, and they have absolutely no idea how it's going to sort of manifest itself. So, like, how much is that an enjoyable thing for you, where you sort of go into something going, "I'm gonna, I want to create something that that." Talks about this concept, but I have no idea what it's going to look like. Like, is that fun or is that stressful? For me, it's very 
exciting to having ideas and seeing my idea from my mind to the reality, which is a book or exhibition. Probably I can call myself a revolutionist. <laughs> I don't think it's a good word, but this is happening in my career, and I always want to do new things, and I always want to challenging the industry. Or、oh, uh, we discussed at the very beginning that for the curators and for my peers in the industry, like people trying to build up over on standard, other than follow the certain rules. Well, I mean that's a whole conversation in and of itself because, like, there's the one hand whether it's being a curator or being an artist or whatever it is of like following a trend versus setting a trend. Yeah. Yeah. You know, do you want to be the leader or the follower? Yeah, definitely. We want to be the leader of the new area. Then that's how and Chinese society it's evolving from. Late nineteen eighties, probably like people, generations and generations, the trying to build up new systems all the time. Like my parents and my grandparents, for the generations, I've seen this kind of trends to set up new things very quickly. So you have an idea, and then you're trying to do it, and then your dream has come true. You grew up in the U.S. and I, I haven't been to the U.S., but I did see a lot of similarities in that part. And I grew up with Disney cartoons. I grew up with MTV channels and ESPNs. That was my childhood, basically. So I wait, you, you、yeah. grew up with MTV? It's on the TV. I mean, the Disney cartoon is every day rolling on the TV and ESPN. I'm having a dream to be a racing live skaters when I was young. By seeing that, so that's my everyday life. See, somehow Disney makes sense to me being there, but ESPN and MTV—that somehow that surprises me. I don't know why. But that's my daily life when I was young. But then things has changed. I love it. That was my daily life when I was growing up. <laughs> I have a cousin who graduated from one of the Chinese top university, and he went to Microsoft straight away. And he'd been working as a project manager for more than twenty years. He's a little bit older than I, like probably twelve years older than I. And that's my generation. How we grew up. It's a lot of fun. Information and culture from America, and people want to live in the international life. And but I choose to work in the UK and in Europe since I graduated from my university. But still, like this kind of memories and the culture exchange has influenced me until now. Yeah, I, I'm. I have to admit, I'm probably walking into this conversation, given that you're my first guest from the region, that with a, probably a lot of preconceived American stereotype ideas of what I believe your life is like, and I'm probably horribly wrong with most of them. Yeah, it's very controversial, right? When we're talking about the dreams, like American dreams, Chinese dreams, but it still have spaces for that, right? 
Is there a difference between an American dream and a Chinese dream? It's a big topic. And this changes my, yeah, my my understanding of this changes all the time. But we can compare it to each other in some ways. But I don't know. Probably it's too big for the conversation today. Well, I mean the most fundamental. Like, so you just mean that what like Americans? Because because I my wife is from the Czech Republic, and she often makes fun of me as an American, saying like, "Oh, you your big your dreams are too big. You like you you want things that you will never be able to attain." But like America has this, if you can dream it, you can make it kind of you know yeah. idea that is not true in most other parts yeah, of the world yeah. i mean that's very much an american thing think about the size of the country i think that makes sense right we are coming from the place where we have a lot of territories i mean if you live in the big country sometimes you think bigger wait so you all think even bigger than american dreams you mean Chinese dreams for some people? Yes, at the same. I love it. Okay, so you all dream bigger than American dreams because, like, we're already made fun of for our big dreams. So, like, you, I great. It's it's difficult to uh, interpret it, this dream. Sometimes it means you want to change your lives for for some people. That's America. That's kind of dream. But also, people want to change the world. This is another dream. At this point, I see people in China, all who grew up in China, they do think we can change things by doing it. We all think we can change things, and then life beats us down. <laughs> Sadly. Yeah. It's not true. I. It's funny because I've had this discussion with some people recently about the idea of like when you're young, we're all very idealistic and we think we can literally like change the world, we'll say. Yeah. And and then as time goes on, oftentimes your your career goals or your life goals, or your ambitions or stuff sort of start getting sort of whittled away. Like when I was young, I had this ambition that I wanted to have a retrospective at the Guggenheim when I was 50 years old as an artist. Yeah. And, and I'm now 48 years old and I'm nowhere near having a retrospective at the Guggenheim. So it's like, meh, <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think that's going to be happening. Sure. I understand what you mean. And so it's pretty much the time when all the dreams has faded away or people still trying to change their lives in China. For example, if people working in a factory, they are hoping their children to get better education in the city to change their lives. It happens over the last 30 years. A lot of people from the villages, from the rural areas, they did change their life by and going to the top universities and become millionaires and they set up companies and change other people's lives I have to say yes this happened in the last 30 years but probably not anymore or getting more difficult to doing so in china because the social the social class oh i don't i don't like this word class or basically the elite class has been this is a little bit away from our discussion but yes getting difficult to having this dream come true 
I would imagine, yeah, because like once people have power, they don't want to give it up, and they yeah. and end up exploiting the people with lesser money and power and all that. Like yeah. I, I get it. I was in the United Arab Emirates, and it's sort of the same way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, actually, probably more exaggerated there, but I try not to talk about it because I still am mm -hmm. afraid they're going to throw me in prison there. <laughs> no way. Yeah, they. I'm. I'm still afraid they're following me, tracking me. But I'm sure they don't even care about me. But it's just my paranoia. Because <laughs> when I was in the United Arab Emirates, a coworker of mine, a, another professor, uh, got thrown in prison and then deported for posting something on social media. Yeah. And it, what they posted was not like inappropriate, illegal. It didn't break any Sharia laws, nothing like there was no reason for this to happen, but it did. And so like that put sort of the, the fear of God in me to like, just stay away from them. Mm. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to like break all the rules. I love breaking rules, but like, boy, some life experiences really sort of make you go like, okay, there are some rules that maybe you don't want to break because the ramifications can be too much. Understand. And the thing regarding to breaking the rules and on the one hand, as a Chinese people who are working in the art industry and photography industries, we have to break the rules to make things more exciting. At the same time, you, you better be quiet. And yeah, it's kind of the situation is always like this. Oh, yeah. I mean, our job as creatives and artists is to sort of turn a mirror on society in some way and sort of say like, hey, this is not good and this is bad and whatever, and sort of make us think more. Like that's yeah, our sure. role as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. No, the things I'm talking about are not art related. I'm still to this day, like I have, I have a couple of things in my life that I'm perfectly fine with being arrested for. My art or anything relevant to my art practice, I am perfectly fine with being arrested for those things. Mm. Uh, a bigger question so like i th again this is totally i apologize if it's like my you know twisted american view on this social media like do you have it do you use it is it something important to your sort of field for you know be being sort of based in china yeah we have a wechat i have three thousand followers on wechat but this kind of private connections only your peers will reply you and it's pretty much a tight network where you can post things post news and express yourself but you all have no access to instagram facebook oh yeah no 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 we, we do but i don't have time okay. to do it i mean i I have everything here. Time. We can we can use it by smart ways, but it's most of the time I spend my time on WeChat, where it's a quite Chinese network stuff. You can also see the news and discussions and exciting news here. So I I don't really have enough time to go to different channels. And as a mom of a four years heat it's a terrible time for me to doing the housework taking care of the kids while like working on my um projects the school stopped since the early last month so i have to suffer from the long time work 
The homeschooling. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't know you had a child. but I so have that, a child. Very challenging. Well, that's another thing is like, uh, I've heard many stories, both from men and women in the arts industry about like having a child and how that sort of potentially creates either some maybe positive, but possibly even negative sort of impact on your career. Like, did you see any sort of impact from, you know, choosing to have a child as to whether your accessibility, your, your opportunities are available to you, anything like this? Good question, and my answer is positive, no. And okay, I, great. at the very beginning, I thought people might think, okay, you have a child, and, but nobody cares. Marvelous. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm happy to hear that, so. But still, like, China is a highly... Isn't China the place with the one-child rule? Uh, I'm a one-child in the family. My husband also is a one-child. We're having one child, but now you can have up to whatever, like three or... But people choose not to get married, and they choose not to have any children. So I think I'm the last generation who willing to sacrifice to, <laughs> to having the children. I mean, for, for the young generations, especially for those who grew up in the late 90s, they were not having marriage or having children. The, the birth rate is dramatically dropped in China. So that will be something changed in next 20 or 30 years. People choose to live with themselves and they're happy with it. Interesting. All right. Well, let's try and sort of wrap this up. I generally try to end up with uh, some questions, just sort of advice for either curators or artists or sort of anything from, because I know you do, uh, you know, jurying and you do your um, portfolio reviews and all these other kinds of different things that you're sort of involved in seeing what the younger people are doing. So like any advice to try and help them sort of get uh, further in their careers? One thing I found problematic in recent portfolio reviews is the young people they trying to follow the trends this is a bit quite big topic but when you see the works all related to your family albums or some archive photo collections this is too much for for the viewers or for the curators I do online portfolio reviews and holy crap, I'm so tired of seeing people pulling their pictures of their grandparents and then doing some Photoshop thing to it and thinking it's something new and dynamic. I mean, it has been done to death. Yeah. And just do some project which is really matters to yourself. I mean, doesn't need to be very sophisticated or complicated, but for young artists especially, you have to find something you really want to do. That's my suggestion, probably. Just one month ago, when I did the format portfolio review, I remember one girl who is very interesting. Just one, huh? Yeah, she's she's very charming. Her, her photographs is very charming, but she don't want to talk about herself. She's not brave enough to talk about herself, her life. And her career. I mean, this is something you need to be willing to talk about yourself. I think that's my second suggestion. And the third one is 
prepare a good portfolio. Yeah. Oh yeah. Editing is, <laughs> is an art for me in and of itself. But yeah, I mean, I've had the same kind of thing in my career. Like when I, when I've made work that I thought was like universal and like everybody will understand it. It's this mm-hmm. you know big, broad topic that's you know understandable to everybody. Nobody gets it. And then when I do like an incredibly intensive, personal, very vulnerable project, everybody engages with that. It's the, it's the weirdest sort of opposite thing. Like when you try to make universal, it, yeah. it sort of misses the mark. Nobody gets it. And when you do extremely personal, people really engage and understand that. And I don't understand why that happens. Yeah, it's a good conclusion to the, to the talk today. That's the magic of human beings. We are connected through many things, right? In spite of where you live, whether you are Americans or Chinese, I mean, we have the common sense of baby when we're young and we need friendship and we are connected. This is very cliche to end up this conversation, but yeah, that's what I want to say. But it's true. I mean, in the end, it's the we all think we're unique, but realistically, everybody has those same whatever the issues, dramas. We all yeah. have them. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would also appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, or studio mates, anybody with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and for the future is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Arts Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.